Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're looking at John Calvin's Institutes. We're in book two, and now in chapters nine and ten, where Calvin attempts to kind of piece together the Old and New Testaments. And we were just talking about this, Ian. Do you want kind of introducing this section, because I think you had a, a better handle on it than I did. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, I would be remiss, though, to begin without wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving from south of the border. <laughs> All very happy up here. No problems yeah, whatsoever. No, nothing. <clears throat> yeah, so um, we're reading both uh, chapters 9 and 10 of uh, Book 2, The Institutes. And uh, right now we're kind of in this, this section where, where Calvin is talking about the relationship kind of between the Old and New Testament to the law and the gospel. And, uh, and he's, a, he's making kind of great pains over these two, two chapters here to, to demonstrate that there really is a kind of fundamental unity between the two. Um, he's very concerned with uh, some of his, what he describes as his opponents, like Servetus, who I think at one point along the way, he actually refers to as a dog, <laughs> which was pretty cool. And, uh, and, uh, and wow. then there was Anabaptist. He also he had a great name for the Anabaptist, too. And I was like, oh, I'm sure I'll, I'll find it if I look for here. Um, oh, the madman! Yeah, he called. He also calls uh, on four twenty nine the wonderful rascal, surveyor, right. and madman of hmm. the Anabaptist sect. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Um, so these 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 uh, opponents of his are kind of like denying that there's any kind of like real deep correlation that's united in Christ between the Old and the New Testaments. So he is he is he is showing how you know the old anticipates the new, but also that there's this kind of unity between the between them, which is Christ, who is the mediator of, of really both. And he's going to signal that the two are really effectively kind of one promise. There are dis different dispensations that he'll say, but they're, but they're united under this kind of one promise. And Christ is actually the mediator of both. And the promises of the old aren't really just merely kind of carnal or fleshly. Um, but both, both covenants have this promise that has to do with immortality, with, with eternal life, the afterlife and those kinds of things. So, um, so that that's a kind of basic summary of, of these two chapters and, and what he's trying to do. And he really kind of illustrates this. It goes at length throughout the book, mm. uh, chapter ten there, which is giving you example of example of example from the old covenant, starting with Abraham, showing the the kind of spiritual benefit of mm. that covenant. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. We can get into the details. It's, it's in interesting as you're as you're explaining. I looked and we were talking before we recorded how it might kind of reading it. It reminded me a lot of Irenaeus of Lyon. And have this, there's a little section I noticed in chapter 10 and section 4 where Calvin's talking about the Old Testament and he, he talks about the whole of it, um, gospel preaching and all that, is summed up in Christ. Anyways, I know that's just probably a side note, but it reminds me a little bit of some of the language of Irenaeus. I'd have to look at this more carefully, but maybe it's just yeah. a, a coincidence. Uh, also on this page, I just want to quickly note it's interesting that John Calvin calls Mary the blessed virgin. I don't think we usually speak of Oh, I Mary missed that. Way. Where does he say it? Right near the bottom of the page, 431, section 4, chapter 10. Yeah. Um, oh, right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virgin. A lot of the reform, early reform anyways, um, will speak of the Virgin Mary in ways that are good and right, but maybe are uncommon to us today. And I think through polemics, we're sometimes a little afraid to be like, Mary is a very wonderful example of the faith and, and great person. So anyways, as a total side note, I just thought it was interesting that he called her that. Um, as we get going, I wanted to read a section from uh, chapter 10 and section 7. And it's really about, it's on Calvin's kind of language of union and illumination or enlightenment. 
Kelvin, we're going to find the next, I think in the next few chapters or very soon anyways, that Kelvin has a very strong view of union with Christ and it means much to him. And it seems to be kind of maybe the central motif of his, of his view of salvation. Now I'll, I'll let you let the readers kind of judge that once we get there. But I want to read this section kind of after he talks about the Anabaptists, uh, you know, this, starting the second sentence of the second paragraph, Kelvin says, I take it for granted that there is such life energy in God's word that it quickens the souls of all to whom God grants participation in it. For Peter's saying has always been valid that it is an imperishable seed which abides forever, as he also infers from Isaiah's words. Now, since God of old bound the Jews to himself by a sacred bond, there's no doubt that he set them apart to the hope of eternal life. When I say they embrace the word to be united more closely to God, I do not mean that general mode of communication, which is diffused through the heaven and earth and all creatures of the world. For although it quickens all things, each according to the measure of its nature, it still does not free them from the exigency of corruption. Rather, I mean that that special mode, which both illumines the souls of the pious into the knowledge of God and, in a sense, joins them to him. Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and the other patriarchs cleave to God by such illumination of the word. Therefore, I say that without any doubt, they entered into God's immortal kingdom. For theirs was a real participation in God, which cannot be without the blessing of eternal life. It reminds me a lot, too, of the book of Hebrews, where you have this very strong language. You have, like, Moses found, that, you know, uh, privileged the shame of Christ over all the, the, uh, all the gold of Egypt, something to that effect. And all of the kind of patriarchs yeah. looking forward to Christ in that heavenly city. Uh, it's kind of a similar idea here. Um, but I found in particular the language of, of union, cleaving, bond, I guess, uh, enlightenment, very helpful and, and interesting. And it's kind of a, an anticipatory thing for the next few chapters once he gets more into the union with Christ idea. Um, yeah, it's the way like P Peter Lilbach in his book on Calvin's Covenant Theology, he just he calls it, the title of the book is called The Binding of God hmm. <clears throat> and how in a way God really binds us to himself in, in, in way of covenant, right? So in this section that you just read, there is this distinction between two types of people. There are those, everybody who is kind of all of creation really, that's kind of bound to God in a way. Um, but then he says that there, there's this kind of like special uh, being especially embraced by the word and united more closely to God. And he uses this language, both of illumination or um, the kind of uh, uh, participation language that gets picked up in here, you know? And right. so when we ask that question, you know, I'll often get this in class from students. It'll be, you know, well, were the Old Testament, uh, the people of the Old Testament saved? Well, here's Calvin's answer to it. Absolutely. Right. They were by the word of promise bound to God and therefore they had the blessings of eternal life, just like we do. And he's going to explain how that works with Christ as the mediator of that mm. covenant. Um, but it's still, it's, it's pretty profound because then the implication is we're also bound in this, you know, to God in the same sort of ways. So it's really, really kind yeah. of something. Yeah, I, I didn't notice. It. Or I didn't underline the first time that the bound and bond language, but it's important. I'd also like to note the word communication here is probably more, more like the technical word of communication. Like we think of communication as merely just talking, but it was, it's more the idea of sending and receiving something. Um, yeah. And therefore it kind of ties into the union or participation language as well.
Well, he's calling it here. He's saying for those all over the globe, he refers to that as a, the, the way that God speaks. He's speaking of general revelation here. He's like, I don't mean that general mode of communication, which is diffused through heaven and earth uh, and all the creatures of the world. He's saying it, it, it's really this, this what we're bound to God by as his people is really what we would call, like he's, he's calling it the gospel. That's what it hmm. is, law gospel distinction. It's the it's that special revelation that's beyond nature, right? And it, he says it illumines the soul of the pious, mm. and then by illumining, he actually joins us to to him. Now, you mentioned before we were recording uh, that it was interesting that Calvin had all these different examples to kind of prove his point. Like, who exactly is he? Does he have in the crosshairs? Okay. What's interesting in Book Ten, Section Ten, he really identifies the controversy that he is engaging in that it maybe is hard to understand. He says, now let us examine the chief point in this controversy, whether or not the believers were so taught by the Lord as to perceive that they had a better life elsewhere and disregarding the earthly life to meditate upon the heavenly. It strikes me that he's kind of made this point already when he talks about the, the sacrifices in the old covenant system. He makes the point that it's, uh, it's a bit absurd if you think of them by themselves, but really they're always kind of pointing forward if memory serves or their shadows and types, that kind of idea anyways which in book nine, or sorry, in chapter nine, he's made that point as well, their types and shadows. So whatever the controversy is, uh, what he's trying to seem, the position he's trying to vindicate is that the Old Testament saints, the patriarchs and so on, were sort of saved by Christ and they looked forward to these sort of heavenly realities and the blessings of immortality. Which also, I mean, just one more note and I'll let you kind of comment after that. It strikes me that um, sometimes we, we think of um, salvation oddly. Like I, I think Calvin gets it right. The immortality that blessed life is really the goal. It's sin that impedes our way to that life. So it's not just being forgiven. Like that's not really the fullness of what we're looking for. I mean, that's necessary and important, but if you're forgiven, that's great. But there's also the positive side that you're looking forward towards that beatific vision, that vision of God, that blessed life, that immortality, that, that great super abundant life that we're looking forward to. And you don't just stop after you're forgiven. It looks to me like Kelvin kind of gets that pretty clearly here. Do you have any thoughts or advances here? Yeah, he the controversies noted where I was kind of poking fun at him there when he was calling, you know, the Anabaptist madman and Servetus the wonderful rascal there on 429. Hmm. Uh, in that footnote, footnote two, um, the editors provide for it. So I haven't researched this. So I don't know anything about it. But like he, it says there that Servetus insistently affirms the view here rejected by Calvin. And it quotes Servetus, uh, 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 in the law, remission of sins was carnal and earthly, as also was faith. And so the, that's why he's saying here, you know, that the, these Servetus and the madmen of the Anabaptists regard the Israelites as nothing but a herd of swine. And on he says that they babble about the Israelites as fattened by the Lord on this earth without any hope of heavenly immortality. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it seems like for, for these these heretics really is that that the the people of the old covenant the israelites or the jews they don't actually have any kind of like eternal hope or right. you know any kind of real eternal life it's just all the all the blessings that they get because right. they're not done in christ are uh, are merely earthly blessings and that's what he's railing against and that's why he just goes you know he's right. very concerned about this and he's just giving you you know right from the very very beginning all the way through you know patriarchs this david and the psalms minor prophets he's just really? showing no 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 they all see it even right. Job, bam man that's just that's really helpful what you just said because it made a lot of things kind of click in my mind because this is kind of the, the big temptation we see through church history is to look at the old testament 
as being about something a little bit different, uh, the way that God's portrayed, the way that people are, and the New Testament being about something that's quite a bit different. It's about this yep. new thing. Uh, the God of the New Testament is, is better, stronger. It's kind of the Marcionite temptation. It and is. Again, this reminds me, because so, my mind's in Irenaeus right now so much about how he's trying to say there's one God, one Christ, one rep, like all this oneness language in the old and the new, just like Calvin yep. is doing. And this idea that, that Servetus had and others still have in some ways, that there's like the two levels of salvation, there's this carnal, earthly type of Israelite thing, and then the Christian heavenly-minded stuff. Now, it's, it's not all heretical, but it is linked to this kind of impetus of seeing the Old and New Testaments as two separate things. Yeah. Again, I don't say it's all heretical because some people have different views and they want to word things differently, but it is, it's a huge danger that we need to be vigilant about. Um, if, if Christ is not in the Old Testament, if they're not saved by Christ, uh, then there's another mode of salvation, which we need to clearly avoid. Yeah, and he's going to ground that right in the earlier discussion in, in chapter nine, where he's saying that, you know, there is this distinction between the law and the, and, the, and the gospel. We have to affirm that. But he's careful to say eh, the Old Testament isn't the law purely and, and the new isn't the gospel purely, but rather there is the gospel in the Old Testament and the law actually has benefits for us, right? And so um, so he's going to say that uh, the clearest manifestation of the gospel is, is in Christ in the new, but everybody else has it, right? That's why on 424, Abraham, he has assurance of good hope. Uh, and, um, you know, none of this excludes those who had died before Christ and that they all had some sort of like, you know, a deliverance in him, even though this is the, the administration, right. we might say, of the law. But nevertheless, it's the, the means by which everybody is saved is, is the gospel. And he, he makes that distinction between what he calls the kind of broad sense of the gospel hmm. and then a higher sense, which comes in Christ, which he makes there right at the very top of that page. He, he says it quite um, cl clearly, too, near the bottom of 426, the last sentence of section 3. Only we must note a difference in the nature or quality of the promises. Yeah. Gospel points out with a finger what the law foreshadowed under types. And then yeah. on the next page, he says a lot about it. Rather, it confirmed and satisfied whatever the law had promised and gave substance to the shadows. Uh, it talks about clarity of manifestation, as you noted, and so on. Yeah, so there's a, really, there's a lot of continuity there. And the, yeah, the gospel doesn't replace, he says, um, in four, on page 427. But the gospel did not so supplant the entire law as to bring forward a different way of salvation, rather it confirmed and satisfied whatever the law had promised and gave substance to the shadows. Yeah. And so there's a sort of singularity. I mean, even the sacrificial system itself wasn't there by itself to forgive you. It wasn't like if you killed an animal, you're just somehow forgiven. It was always a shadow and type of what Christ would do for us. I've yeah. actually heard, I heard this before. Uh, it was actually in my seminary days that in the old, covenant those sacrifices um actually forgive your sins yeah. themselves and it's okay <laughs> i don't understand how that would work though unless they were a foreshadowing of what christ would in reality do or that also as calvin's saying here is that you know christ really is actually mediating in that old covenant mm. too right and so that there is a reality He's saying that it seems like he's saying at the bottom of four on, uh, on page 427, he says, from this we infer that where the whole law is concerned, the gospel differs from it only in clarity of manifestation, 
Mm. Still, because of the inestimable, inestimable abundance of grace laid open for us in Christ, it is said with good reason that through his advent, God's heavenly gift was erected upon earth. Mm. You know, so like the difference is we're both, both people, you know, people of God in both administrations or both covenants are, are saved by the mediating work of Christ. And yes, those shadows point forward to the realities of Christ. Um, but at the same time, they're actually really and truly mediating his blessings. Um, yes. By good. faith, of course, you have to be, and he right. goes on, right? They're children of Abraham, and so are we, as Paul says, right? So um, you word, have to still be of that tribe, he says. Hmm. Yeah, the word sojourn in the Old Testament with the patriarchs. It, it wasn't the case that Jesus was created sometime in history and never had a persistent personality throughout time into eternity. The word was always there with them. Yep. Um Okay. Uh, any other, I think we're, I mean, it's a relatively simple couple, not simple perhaps, but relatively straightforward, maybe I should say, a couple of chapters. It's all very good stuff. It's illuminating, helpful. Was there anything else you wanted to note before we kind of dialed it down? I, I wanted to just know, just when you're reading, if you kind of chuckled to yourself when uh, on 429, right at the very beginning of number two there, uh, he says, uh, when he's talking about this kind of, he's trying to explain it all, he says, uh, both can be explained in one word. And then he says, the covenant made with all the patriarchs is so much like, I'm like, what's the one word? <laughs> is it covenant? Yeah, he goes on and talks in that same sentence about substance and reality, which are the one and the same. I'm like, what is the one word? <laughs> he doesn't well, maybe really he means one sentence. I don't... <laughs> maybe, I don't... maybe in like the Latin, he's got it right there. And uh, it just got lost in the translation. Or something. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of amusing. Well, okay. Well, this is a good section. Uh, next week, we're doing chapters 13, 14, and 15. And I think... Oh, how about this? Before we quit, how about yeah, yeah. we talk about the sacraments? Uh, oh, good point. Yeah. Sacramental language in, uh, in, in chapter 10, uh, section 5 there on 432. Uh, he says that they have the same sacraments as us as well, even yes. though they look differently. Um, nevertheless, uh, he says right there, uh, he uses the language symbols, which is, you know, the technical term. Uh, the theological term, he says. Um, so he begins with the premise, that there's no reason why we should claim any privilege for ourselves to deliver us from the vengeance of God, which they underwent, since the Lord not only provided them with the same benefits, but also manifested his grace among them by the same symbols. And uh, and then he's going to talk about their baptism is in the crossing of the sea and being led by the cloud. They eat the sp same spiritual food, quoting 1 Corinthians 10, which is reference to Christ. And then he's going to go right on in number six uh, to talk about John six and the manna. Uh, and so they, they, they get, they, they obtain the benefits of that grace that comes by way of Christ through the sacraments, mm. their sacraments, though they look different in terms of their elements have the same effect as the sacraments we have. And, um, and so, um, you know, we, we obtain the same benefit that they do. Um, mm. And we do it sacramentally. It's just that now it's a little bit different. It's curious that he links uh, baptism to the crossing in the sea and doesn't say that we have circumcision. Yeah. He does talk about circumcision uh, later, huh. he talk, but he, he links circumcision to the resurrection. He's saying that the they're uncircumcised. Uh, that means they're cut off from the resurrection. So I was like, oh, those are some interesting. It's not typically how we think of, you know, in terms of paedobaptist theology, the con right. correspondence is going to be between circumcision and baptism here is linking it's actually the baptism of the red sea and mm. our baptism so that's kind of neat well this whole section is interesting he, he again returns to his language of accommodation so in john yep. 6 jesus is accommodating 
to the capacity of his hearers. Um, but then Paul is kind of knowing the kind of more, more like the, the deeper spiritual sense and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Because the communication language here, uh, then he says, but there, but, but also then with a truly spiritual sacrament, spiritual sacraments, so again, it's a sacramental language. So all the things you said were really interesting. Um, and and he this sees section, the sacraments on the bottom of 433 is sealing, right? So sealing. like for them in the old covenant, they were sealed hmm. um, by those sacraments, just like we are as well. Yeah, I'd almost kind of want to read the section again a little closer because there's a lot of interesting things being noted here that I'm sure he'll get to it, though. And probably in, in book four, I imagine, is where the sacraments are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he'll kind of clarify with, with more. I've looked at, in, you know, John 6 is an interesting passage. I've, I think I read his, yeah, I read his comments on parts of this. And his view is essentially, it talks about the same reality as the Lord's Supper, but not the Lord's Supper itself. Yeah. That reality is main, namely union with Christ. Yeah. Is if you feast on his flesh and drink his blood, you're united to him. Yeah. Um, that's the reality. It's the same reality that the Lord's Supper and uh, John 6 is talking about. So it's a bit of a tweak on how we might think of John 6. I think he's right, I think. Yeah. Um, it's not directly about the Lord's Supper, but it's about the same reality. And I think that helps us to conceive of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, well, also, I think the way, I think the way he also started to go back to this idea of the covenant in, uh, on bottom of 434, number eight, yeah. he, he says that basically the, the formula of the covenant, right, is it stays the same. It's I will be your God and you shall be my people. Hmm. And that, that maintains right across uh, both administrations of that covenant. So he even calls he, it. He is really doing formula. a good job. He's really doing a good job at unifying the two under under who God, who hmm. Christ is or who God is for us in Christ. I, it's interesting because of the uh, formula of the covenant and that that's actually kind of the newer or the contemporary scholarly language they call it the, the covenant formula so i guess that's not that new just call it that yeah um okay well good there's actually a lot here i mean we could probably talk forever even though i thought it was a bit more straightforward there's there's lots of <laughs> lots of wisdom um i i did misstate earlier next week is chapters 11 and 12 that we're getting right. into and i'm looking this is at least what I'm most looking forward to is in the, the last bit of book two, because I love the Christological stuff in Kelvin. I think it's helpful and good. Not that I didn't necessarily love everything before this. It's just sometimes I think as people are <laughs> yeah, maybe right. stronger in different areas, but Kelvin, I think is quite strong in Christology. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll read the next two yeah, chapters gonna, for this week. Yeah, he's, gonna pay, he's, he's, he's emphasized the unity here. And now he's going to, in the next chapter, emphasize some of the differences between the two. And, uh, and then how Christ, that, that office of mediator, needs to be fulfilled in, uh, in chapter 12. So, yeah, that Christology stuff will really ramp up there. Oh, man. Well, we're looking forward to it. So we'll get to that hopefully this week and next week. So thank you, Ian. And awesome. have a great week. Cheers.